You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal and I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University. Today on the City of Man we have a special episode. Uh, We have a recording of a lecture given by Dr. Jonathan Lehman on February 6th at Southwest Baptist University and sponsored by the Institute on Religion and Democracy. As you can tell, we were having some issues with uh, audio quality, uh, including the microphone not always picking up questions. Uh, I think the content of this, however, is is still excellent, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I did. All right, everyone, welcome again uh, to our, we don't have a name for this, uh, but the the Institute of Religion and Democracy has kindly helped us bring uh, Dr. Jonathan Lehman out, both for chapel uh, and now to talk a little bit about church-state issues. Uh, Dr. Lehman, as you heard this morning, uh, is the editorial director of Nine Marks Ministries, uh, let me think, what else? Uh, husband of Shannon, father, father of four daughters. Four daughters, man. Teaching uh, a number of seminaries. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Te- including up at Midwestern this week. Yep. So, yeah, uh, all of those things are fair game for Q&A. But for the next little while, we're going to learn about church and state. So, Dr. Lehman. And, and a lot of my, yeah, great, thank you. Buddy. And a lot of my, 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 my PhD was in political theology. So a lot of my writing has been around this area of the church, but also church and state, and that's what we're going to think about tonight. Um, many Christians, I mean, I don't know how closely you're paying attention to broader conversations right now, especially in Christian spaces, around these questions of church and state. A lot of Christians are in a bit of a panic at the moment. Uh, Obergefell, 2013, marked a signal change built up for a while, but a signal change in society. You know, if, if you go back to Aristotle and you understand that the nation and the state is very much built off the family, well, that's a radical change of what the family is, and that's just going to have multiple repercussions, and we're, we're only beginning to discover those repercussions. The transgender revolution, which followed right on the heels of Obergefell, is just one small example, a small, large example, there's, there's going to continue to be more. And Christians feeling more and more opposition in the public square to their own faith, people are responding in all sorts of ways to that. Some are doubling down on classical liberalism. I don't know if you read David French. He'd be a clear example of that. Uh, So, for instance, what do we do about drag queen story hour in public libraries? Is that okay? David French says, yes, we want to maintain... Uh, neutrality, viewpoint neutrality in the public square. So you Christians can come in and talk, but you know we also have to let transgenderism come in, do drag queen story hour in, in a public space. So he's doubling down on classical liberalism and some of the foundational principles of the American experiment. Meanwhile, other Christians are saying this is crazy. Do we really even stick with the principles of the American experiment? You know, freedom and equality and democratic elections and rights and so forth. Maybe we need to go back and retrieve some older Protestant ideas. So there's a retrieval movement going on looking to magisterial Protestantism, like the earliest Protestants, in which you had state-established churches and so forth. Others are, are trumpeting Christian nationalism. You might see some of that. And that comes with a variety of governmental solutions, but they're saying we need to be a Christian nation, formally or otherwise. Others others are calling for certain versions of theonomy. You might have heard the name Doug Wilson. He's calling for a certain kind of general equity theonomy. Still others are saying we just got to get off the grid. So a professor friend of mine from Western Seminary in Oregon took his five, six kids, moved up to the border next to Canada in Washington State, completely off the grid. And more and more people in the Pacific Northwest are doing that. Right? All of these different responses to cultural turmoil, opposition to Christianity. What do we make of this? Do we stick with the principles of the American experiment? Do we go searching for something else? 
Do we try to enforce the first two commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol for yourself or worship it. A lot of these people said, yeah, we need to enforce those. That's how this country got to where it was, but we weren't enforcing it. We're going to go back to that. Well, what should we do? I think we need to turn to the Bible and say, what does the Bible teach about government? It's one area of Christian discipleship. Part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Well, what does he command about government? What does the Bible command about government? Is that something you've thought much about? Well, I'm, I'm suggesting we need to think about, I think that increasingly, the political science departments that uh, Dr. Neal is teaching need to be part of your Christian discipleship program. So for the next 40, 45 minutes or so, I'm going to get kind of intense here in the Bible. I want to think carefully about what the Bible says on the authority and the jurisdiction of government, what it's called to do, how it's called to do it, and why. Those are the three questions. What, how, why. What does God call the government to do? How does he call it to do it? And why? Why does he authorize governments in that way? What, how, why? All right. Number one, what authority does... Any questions before I start? Anything at all? You guys clear about where we're trying to go? Anything at all? Jonathan, you need to cover this? Okay. I want you to feel free to raise your hand ask questions if you don't understand something. Number one, what authority does the Bible say the government should have? Answer, the authority to protect life and facilitate the dominion mandate. It's a very biblical answer. Hopefully I'll unpack it some. So the government's authority very clearly comes from God, right? It doesn't come from a social contract. Paul, Paul tells us this in Romans 13. It comes from God. But Romans 13 is not where he first authorizes government. That's like how many thousands of years into human existence? Well, you got to go back to the beginning and say, okay, why did God call for the establishments of governments? Well, in some sense, you have it all the way back in the garden where he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Government authority is an entailment of that. Even in an unfallen world, someone needs to decide if we're gonna drive on the right side the left side of the road, right? Uh, who's going to supervise the, the, the construction of this skyscraper? All these people working together. Right? So even an unfallen world, working together requires some kind of governmental authority. But then you move post-fall. Human beings are now murdering each other, Genesis 4. Stealing one another's provisions, Genesis 14 raping one another's daughters and slaughtering entire cities in retaliation, Genesis 34. So God introduces coercive authority in Genesis 9 to respond to the effects of the fall. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there, a little app, look at Genesis 9. What we find there is what I would call the Great Commission text for governmental authority on this side of the fall, Genesis 9, 5, and 6. So, so Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission check tells what churches want them to do. Well, I, I understand Genesis 9 to play that role, verses 5 and 6. It doesn't tell us everything a government will do, but it lays down a few constitutional principles, basics. Okay? Uh, look at verse 5. Now, let's look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, you might not have spent a lot of time meditating on that verse. I want to pull up a chair, sit down. I just want to stare at it. There's a lot packed into that verse. Six lessons. This is like six subpoints to question one, all right? Six lessons that we get from that verse. First, Lesson one from that verse. It authorizes the use of coercive force to prosecute the taking of life. Pretty clear, right? Basic. Authorizes coercive force in order to prosecute the taking of life. By implication, I would say, it also authorizes the government to prevent 
the unjust taking of life. For instance, I'd say it gives the government moral permission to say, uh, for instance, here's the speed limit. Or commercial airlines must meet these safety codes. Or even we need to have you pay taxes so we can build an army to protect our nation, to protect these lives of which we have authority. Second lesson. The verse establishes a principle of due process. Parity, right? Like for like, the punishment must fit the crime. It's not, it's, it's, it's life for life, not life for stealing a horse. Like the 51 recorded instances in early American history of people being hanged for horse stealing, the last one being in 1851. The punishment should always fit the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for truth, as a later passage, Exodus 21, puts it. People are often scandalized by that verse, right? Called lex talionis. But keep in mind that in the ancient world, this principle served to limit the otherwise unconstrained demands for vengeance. Think again about Jacob's sons massacring in a city in retaliation for the rape of their sister Dinah. Constrained excessive punishment. Not only that, under-punishing a crime risks devaluing the life of a victim. It says, oh, their life wasn't worth much. So let's suppose somebody stole a diamond ring from you, and I came along and I said, well, here, here's a stick of gum. You say, that, that diamond ring was worth a lot more than a stick of gum, thank you very much. So when somebody is murdered, the punishment isn't just about the offender. That's how we think. It's about the offender. Do we rehabilitate? Do we, do we punish? Well, it's not just about the offender. It's also about the victim. And making a declaration about the victim and saying, that life was worthy. It was costly. You see? So life for life affirms the dignity of human beings. You see? Not only... Uh, uh, this, this establishment of parity, like for like, also implies that every governmental action requires a just measurement. The government can't come along and say, hey, we're going to do this. Well, is there due process there? Proverbs 16, 10 and 12. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil. For the throne is established by righteousness. So a just king is going to have equal balances, scales, and everything he does. Uh, practically, for instance, the government must not bribe or overtax its citizens for selfish gain. Proverbs 29, verse 4. Any tax requires a clear and just gauge that accords with government's basic life-affirming purposes. It's the second lesson. So first one, Protect life and use of chorus of force. Second lesson, parity, due process. Third lesson, Genesis 9, 6 affirms the value of every human life as made in God's image and therefore equally valuable. People of every color and creed, men and women, deserve to be treated as God imagers and been possessors of a basic political equality. Jim Crow laws that read separate but equal, pushing blacks to different drinking fountains, are unjust, right? Fourth lesson. This verse subjects every human to its requirements, including governments themselves. Look at the verse again. What's the first word in verse 6? Whoever. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his, be blood, shall his blood be shed. So the verse becomes a kind of boomerang circling back on an unjust government the murderous dictator, the racist town sheriff. If he, they, unjustly kill, it's boomeranging back. Unjust governments are not above Genesis 9-6. Nobody is above it. Hitler is not above it. We're all subject to it, even governments. A fifth lesson. 
This verse possesses a very clear theological basis for God made man in his own image. But interestingly, it doesn't authorize us to enforce that basis. So I'm making two points here. It gives a theological basis, but it doesn't give us authority to enforce that theological basis. The trigger for action is harm to humans. Blood. Whoever sheds the blood, right, doesn't talk about harm to God. How do you measure harm to God? Blasphemy, idolatry, what, what harm is caused to God? How, how do you measure it? How do you pay him back? You can't. Again, the trigger is blood of humans. In other words, this verse seems to be establishing, establishing a kind of domain of religious liberty. Any false worship, any idolatry, is wrong, it's sinful, but the government here, humans here, have no authority to prosecute that unless harm is coming to a human being. So the Christian scientist decides to not bring their child with a life-threatening illness to the doctor and says, religious freedom. Well, at that point, I think the state can step in, intervene and say, sorry, this this citizen's life is at threat, is at risk. Your religion is denying care for this child, so we are going to intervene. So it's not an infinite, expansive domain of religious liberty, but there does seem to be a kind of basis for religious liberty here. As I said, a lot packed into this one little verse. Five lessons. One more. And the thing here is to notice where verses 5 and 6 are set. If you look down at your text, verse 1, verse 7, what's, what's the paragraph in which it sits? What's bookending these two verses? What's, it's the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply, verse 7. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us the authority to use coercive force facilitates the larger project of enabling people to fulfill the dominion mandate. Governments exist then to help secure the basic conditions for fulfilling the dominion mandate. For starters, for instance, as an example, that means governments should protect the basic structures of marriage and the family so that people can indeed be fruitful and multiply. Governments should not redefine marriage to include homosexuals because, number one, they just don't have the authority to do so. God says this is what marriage is. He doesn't authorize them to say, no, that is what, there's no authority to do so. Number two, they weaken real marriage by defining marriage around the feelings of the couple rather than the potential for fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply. And number three, the de de redefinition denies children the right to a mother or a father. In a sense, when two men decide we're going to let the way we feel on the inside define marriage and we're going to form a family, what are they doing? They're stealing from a child the opportunity from, from the child to have a mother. Their inner feelings somehow are more important, are prioritized over that child's right to have a mother and a father. There is, in that sense, a very real victim with same-sex marriage. The children are, in that regard, uh, the victims. Um, one might envision many other factors that hinder the, the work of fruitfulness, dominion, and the basic God-imaging God political equality required for fruitfulness and dominion. The oppression of minorities hinders it. So do entrenched cycles of poverty. Now that doesn't mean governments must ensure every citizen possesses the same economic starting point, but I can imagine a Christian arguing that a basic economic safety net, enough to make sure you wake up with a roof over your head and are able to get to work, have a food in your mouth and get to work in the morning, serves the purposes of dominion. As King Lemuel says, uh, King Lemuel's mother says to him in Proverbs 31, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, 
defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, his mother says to the king. I think a Christian might also argue that facilitating the dominion mandate includes a good monetary policy. If you want to get specific for a second, such a policy provides both a stable currency, standardized interest rates, a stable currency protects everyone's wealth and, and, and their work and their livelihood, and a standardized interest rate prevents usury and the exploitation of the poor. Exodus 22, verse 25, Proverbs 22, verse 7, 28, verse 8, Matthew 25, verse 20. Jesus himself affirms that a coin printed with Caesar's image legitimately fell within Caesar's jurisdiction. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, we can argue about whether or not monetary policy or welfare policy are, are, are reasonable deductions to draw from Genesis 9, 5, and 6 set within the context of 1 to 7. I'm looking to other passages of Scripture to see, but this is where it seems to go. Okay, so I'm trying to use Scripture to interpret Scripture here. We can disagree on whether or not those are legitimate inferences to make. Nonetheless, uh, I think we understand some, some basics of government. God grants government beings the authority to form governments, protect our lives, and promote the conditions necessary for filling fulfilling the dominion mandate. And I think that's why Paul tells us to pray, 1 Timothy 2, um, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So question one, what does he author, uh, authorize government to do? Answer, protect life and facilitate the min, dominion mandate. Okay? Any questions so far? What I've said so far? Basic what? Don't be shy. Any questions? While you're thinking about it, before I go to the next point, there's a couple more comments. Notice here there, there is a tension. Governments that deny God thereby deny the fact that we're made in his image. Which is to say they deny the very basis of justice. Therefore, you can expect a government that denies the God of the Bible to veer eventually towards injustice. Think of everyone from the atheistic communist nations to the emperor-worshipping nations of pre-modern Japan to Muslim nations to the Aztecs. They all denied the God of the Bible, and they all became radically dehumanizing as a result. On the one hand, on the other hand, he doesn't give us the authority to enforce belief in him. There is a tension. And people want to resolve that one way or the other. I don't think we're supposed to. Is that job to church. Now, for truth in advertising, we also need to acknowledge that nations who have a formally affirmed the God of the Bible, the so-called Christian nations of medieval and Reformation Europe, and early America committed terrible injustices by denying the image of God in portions of the population. As with the, the vicious anti-Semitism, the governments of the Reformation area, as well as the affirmation of race-based slavery by those same governments, as well as the United States. So apparently, writing God into your constitution or establishing a church is no guarantee of a just government. Deny God or deny the image of God. You're going towards injustice. Again, any questions on that first point? What does God authorize government to do? Uh, as far as the debate between capitalism and socialism, Capitalism and socialism? That's raging right now. How should we look at this? Chris? I tend to think there's going to be arguments on both sides, which is to say, neither of them, both of them can appeal to certain biblical principles. And so if you're going to give me a completely unconstrained capitalism, I'm going to be like, no. Or a, 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 a complete form of socialism, you know, become communism, ultimately, I'm going to say no. It's a stealing of private property. That's too much. I, I, I'm going to think the debate is going to be somewhere in between. I, I, personally, I lean more in a capitalist direction. But I think that's that's a reasonable conversation appealing to some of the principles I've talked about for Christians to have and even tussle with a little bit. Okay, so great question. Anything else? Or like the Greek notion of, 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 reason, of reason and ethics kind of in, in politics. How do we take these as Christians and say, this is good even though it's not the form of the Bible? Yeah, I think by God's common grace, we're to... 
Well, Yaka, thank you. What do we do with the fact that a number of seemingly reasonable governing principles are coming from non-Christians? Um, was it Calvin talked about fleecing the Egyptians of their treasures, you know? The Israelites left Egypt and they took their treasures with them to the Promised Land. And Calvin talked about how we're to do that with the knowledge of, of non-Christians. We're to take whatever good things that God has revealed to them by God's common grace and, and learn from them. Now, I think those things aren't going to tend to be... Uh, what often I think non-Christians can do is, by God's common grace, they're going to see certain elements of creation, creation design. And they're, going to, they're going to notice it and they're going to see it. Now, we have the Bible to come along and help us clarify, oh, that's right, that is good. Or, or no, that's not right, that's not good. But what's good among your non-Christian teachers is, is worth grabbing. Absolutely. Number two, how does the government do its job? Answer, by administering justice. How does the government do its job? By administering justice. In a sense, I'm summing up everything we have said so far by saying that God gives government the job of doing justice. And we can find later biblical texts which clarify this. Proverbs 29.4. By justice, a king builds up the land. How does the king build up the land? By justice. King David's throne, therefore, existed for the purpose of upholding justice. 2 Samuel 8.15. So David reigned over all Israel... And David administered justice and righteousness to all his people. What is justice in the Bible? Well, people often define, they take the, the Roman definition. Uh, it's giving people their due. And that's not a bad definition. It gets us part of the way there. I think we can do slightly better by putting God's law out in front in our definition by observing that the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word for justice, is actually the noun form of the verb to judge. Justice is the noun form of the verb in Hebrew to judge, right? Biblical justice is judging or making judgments in accordance with the standards of God's righteousness. Biblical justice is making judgments according to, along the lines of, hold up to the ruler of God's righteousness as revealed in God's law. So think, think of Solomon standing in front of two prostitutes, both of whom said, the baby's mine, no, the baby's mine. And Solomon's like, okay, I know this is what we're going to do, bring a sword. And the real mom's like, no, 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 she can have it. Right? How does the narrator summarize that entire episode? 1 Kings 3.28 And all Israel heard the judgment there's that word, the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Right? He did justice. He made a judgment according to the rule, the standard of God. Right? The right standard is the law of God his righteousness. Not surprisingly, the Bible says of God's own throne, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So to translate that into our present American setting, friends, that means the government's job, all three branches, is to do justice, each in its own way. The legislature should pass just laws. The executive branch should enforce just laws in a just way. And judges should uphold just laws and overturn unjust ones. In each case, their work of justice should not be defined by some other God's version of righteousness, but by God's understanding of righteousness. That is what God calls the U.S. government, the Japanese government, the Russian, the Uzbek, the Ukrainian, South African government to do, whether they acknowledge him or not. Now, obviously, many nations, many Westerners, assume otherwise. Our nations are pluralistically reasoned. People believe in many different gods, from the big G gods of Christianity and Judaism and Islam or Mormonism to the little g, neo-pagan gods of sex and body worship and consumption and identity politics. It's tempting for Christians to say that we need to create a public square and establish rules of justice that are neutral. 
between people's competing gods. And the way we do this, classical liberalism is, is always said, justice equals protecting people's rights. Justice equals rights, right? That's, that's, that's in a sense the American experiment. We're gonna to seek to protect one another's rights. That is justice. The trouble is, it's the society's reigning gods that will necessarily define which rights we consider right. Our nation has decided to affirm the right to abortion, the right to same-sex marriage, increasingly the right to define our own children, our own gender as children apart from parental intervention. But are these things right? Who's to say? Are they just? Now it's true that justice in the Bible entails protecting people's rights. Let's go back to Genesis 9, 5, and 6 again. Uh, staring at those verses, I would say, it grants us the right to life, the right to be treated by our government with equal dignity, the right to worship God, free from coercion, the right to insist on a fair trial and due process, even the right to all the liberties requisite for fulfilling the dominion mandate. Still, we possess these rights because God says they are right. Rights only right when and where God says they're right. Pay, pay attention to the S. Right comes before rights. And the government's job must begin with what is right. Okay? Christians didn't respond, and certainly non-Christians respond. Well, okay, well, whose definition of right should we desert? Which God or gods? And they ask the question as if, Anybody has ever abandoned his or her God stepping into the public square. In fact, no one ever has. I remember when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated for circuit court judge, uh, circuit court judgeship, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, listening to her on the Senate Judiciary Committee, said to Senator Feinstein as a crit criticism. Does anybody remember this? Anybody know what happened? Yeah. She said, your dogma lives loudly within you. Your Roman Catholic dogma, meaning, uh, what's the right response to Senator Feinstein? And your dogma doesn't live loudly within you? I was sharing this with a group of interns in Washington, the story of a group of interns in Washington, D.C., and one student raised his hand and he said, so are you saying we should legislate our morality? And I said, name for me one law just one that doesn't legislate somebody's morality. The students all kind of stopped, thought, scratched their head, and kind of a chuckle. That's what laws do. They legislate right, wrong. Morality, you can't get away from it. Every law, everything you do in the public square, behind it is a conception of justice, righteousness. Behind that is your worldview, your religion, your worship, your God. That's true of the Christian, the Muslim, the Jew, the atheist, the progressivist, the stockbroker, the hockey fans. We all step into the public square seeking to grab hold of the, of, of the lovers of power and legislate on behalf of our gods. Governments serve gods. Everyone always has. It's what they do. The real question is whether by hook or crook, who wins the debate in any given moment, right? Now, Christianity, interestingly, its view of government authority is one that imposes a series of self-limiting principles. It says we can only go so far with the government, which we'll come to in a moment. Senator Feinstein's secularism, by contrast, has no limits. What constrains her from imposing the entirety of her worship on us? Nothing. Christianity, interestingly, is the one that says, okay, the government can step this far, but no further. You see? That brings us to a third question, number three. Now, let me stop and pause. Any questions of what I've said so far? I'm trying to give you space to mentally breathe, because I know this is kind of a firehouse. Any questions? 
This is all just super clear. You're like, yes, got it. I'm trying to build, I'm doing my best to build on the Bible. Okay, I hope, I hope you can see that. My best to build from Scripture. Any questions? Okay, see. So we thought about what? We thought about how, by administering judgment, see why. Why has God given government authority? Answer not just for the sake of justice, but ultimately for the sake of redemption. What am I talking about there? Why does God give authority to the government? Well, we've already considered the first two reasons, to protect life and secure the conditions of the dominion mandate, human flourishing, that does these things by administering justice. Call this the immediate or proximate purpose of government. It's concerned with temporal things. Yet the government's temporal concerns ultimately serve an eternal purpose. It sets the stage for redemption. Think, think about the guardrails on a mountain road. You're driving over a mountain road. There's guardrails on the side. What's their immediate purpose? Well, to keep your car on the road, right? But what's their ultimate purpose? Well, to help you get from city A to city B. So they have an immediate purpose, but then there's a larger ultimate purpose. And this is the real story behind the story of governments in the Bible. The spiritual forces of hell fight to use governments to devour God's people. Think about Moses, or think about Pharaoh at the time of Moses. Think about the Assyrian Sennacherib walking right up to the border of Israel. Think about Roman Pilate. Think about the raging nations of Psalm 2. Think about the beast in Revelation 13. They're all trying to devour God's people. Meanwhile, God raises up particular leaders to protect and shelter his people. Think about Pharaoh at the time of Joseph. Think about the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar after his humbling. Before and after, before he's trying to devour. After, he actually seeks to shelter. Uh, think about the Persian Cyrus. Think about the Roman proconsul Festus. God's ultimate purpose for government is not merely to keep people alive, but to keep them alive so that, ultimately, they might know God. Genesis 9 comes before Genesis 12 and the call to Abraham for a reason. Kings are killing each other, killing the Abel's, I'm going to establish government to preserve life. And then I'm going to inaugurate a plan of redemption. You see, through Abraham. I think two New Testament texts make this very, this connection very clear. Again, you have your Bible. Look at Acts 17. Acts 17. Paul's preaching, and he says in verse 26, Acts 17, verse 26, from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked, marked out their appointed times in history and, and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Okay, so God determines the borders of nations and the times of their duration so that people might seek him. The borders don't bring people to God, but they enable people to seek him. Right? Isn't that what it's saying? Or flip over to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. Paul urges us to look there in verse 2 to pray for kings and all those in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Fair enough. We want governments to clear the ground for us to live such lives, lives where we can live out the full range of godliness. God intends. And it's not all his sense. Is there nothing more to say? Well, Paul then tells us why we should pray for governments to do this. This is good, he says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's two steps in this verse, which I think these verses, which are really interesting. Step one, don't pray that governments would make disciples Pray instead that they would help us secure 
peaceful and quiet lives. Step two, realize that this is important, this is good, because God wants people to be saved. Which is apparently the work that belongs to the institution that the rest of 1st and 2nd Timothy are about, the church. So the government's job, in other words, is to clear the path, smooth the road, set the stage, build a platform. A clear path, a smooth road, pleases God and should please us for salvation's sake. In short, we don't want a government that thinks it can offer redemption, but one that views its work as setting the stage, a prerequisite to redemption. I want to teach my kids to read Common Grace so that they can read the Bible, Special Grace, setting the stage by teaching them to read or work of reading scripture. You want a government that builds the streets and polices them so that you can drive to church. That protects the womb so that you can live and hear the gospel. That protects the currency so that you can make an honest living and give to missions. Insist on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and offer hospitality to non-Christians. That resists all discriminatory practices and laws so that minorities and majorities alike might fellowship as equals in the church. That protects marriage and the family not by redefining marriage and by kicking strip clubs out of the city so that men and women can better model Christ's love for the church. Who should you vote for in the next election? For the party or the candidate who understands that's what the government's job is to do to build that platform, to clear the road for the church to be able to do its work. And I think all of this helps us better understand the conversation about justice. God does not call government to establish an expansive, broad, or perfectionist conception of justice, but a narrower, protectionist version of justice. Specifically, God calls government to establish justice in temporal or temporal matters to fulfill the dominion mandate. A government's work does not go beyond death. Its sword cannot reach into eternity. Its impact is temporary, right? Government's jurisdiction, therefore, must be limited to its actual reach, what is temporal. That means we ask governments to establish a protectionist version of justice while we ask churches to declare and bind its members according to a perfectionist stand of a version of justice. So the state gives us a protectionist. This jurisdiction is temporal, right? Well, the church gives us a perfectionist. And its jurisdiction is finally then, through its preaching, eternal. Right? What's, what's an eternal perfectionist standard of justice? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the church is called to preach and disciple its members in for the sake of eternity. Government has a much narrower protectionist standard of justice. Now there's going to inevitably be some ways getting to your capitalism socialist question. Something of a spectrum between those two. Right? And some Christians are going to argue for a little bit more and some for a little bit less. That's fine. We can have those arguments. Nonetheless, I'm trying to establish a basic jurisdictional line. Okay? Um, okay, those are the three questions. What, how, why? How do we put all of this together? Let's think about Jesus' words. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and under God what is God's. I can imagine three different ways of people trying to interpret this passage. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The David Frenches of the world who are calling for a viewpoint neutrality are going to interpret that almost like this, two separate circles. You got Caesar's things, right? 
politics, culture, so forth. And then you'll have God's things, salvation, worship, two separate circles, as it were. And I think many Christians err in this direction. In some sense, if, if we're not thoughtful from our Bible, this is kind of how we implicitly think. As I've got, got to keep church and state separate, religion and politics separate, different things. They shouldn't, they shouldn't mix. Right? It's kind of a default way of thinking for many Americans and even Christian Americans. The trouble with this, however, of course, is that Caesar belongs to God. Somebody bring me a coin. Who's whose image is on Caesar's, they replied. And every Jew there listening would have known, well, Caesar is in whose image? God's image, right? He is accountable to God, clearly. God's coming judgment applies to Caesar and to every human government. When you or I or Caesar step into the public square, we will represent some God, as I've been saying already. It's only a question of whose insofar as Christians have a voice in government, whether it's voters or office holders or anything else, they need to seek to represent God alone because Caesar belongs to God. So this, this, this first version, separate circles, is just not quite working. Okay? Does this mean then that we criminalize all sin? We enforce all worship? We renounce all Religious liberty. We build a, a theocracy with a Christian caliphate. Is that how we do it? Well, some people then want to, people calling for Christian nationalism or a return to magisterial Protestantism or some form of theonomy almost want to make it look like this. So there's God's things, right? And Caesar's things are kind of like, you know, that. And they may leave a little space. Man, he's, he's enforcing quite a bit of it. Is, is that the right solution to this? Well, it, it's certainly true that everything that belongs to Caesar belongs to God. But is it also true that everything that belongs to God actually also belongs to Caesar? That would seem like a weird way to be interpreting what Jesus says. Render to Caesar to Caesar's and render to God's what is God's. No, I don't, I don't think the entire Bible offers that testimony. The key word here is jurisdiction. Okay? And Caesar, I argued a moment ago, has a temporal jurisdiction for implementing a protectionist version of justice. That's an important circle, but it's a limited circle. When you compare that to God's justice, which is eternal and perfectionistic, it's hardly most of the circle. It's just a, it's just a part of the circle. Right? So I think, finally, what Jesus is pointing to is something that's going to look like this. God's things. Okay? And inside of that, down here, Caesar's things. It's inside the circle. It all belongs to God. There's a lot of it outside. And all of this, what is this domain right here? What do we call that? Well, we would call that the domain of religious liberty. Caesar has no jurisdiction here. We're free to do as God would call us to do there. But he has dominion inside of his protectionist temporal circle. Right? That's what we saw with the Noahic Covenant. So I'm going to argue for the separation of church and state. Caesar has to sort of say, the church has the keys of the kingdom. Those are separate authorities. We can talk about the church's authority some other day if you want in Q&A. They are separate, but it all belongs to God. Here's an analogy. I'm almost done. Here's an analogy which will help fill out the illustration. You might say the Bible approaches governments like parents do a babysitter, right? You're not responsible to teach our kids to obey us or to, to love God, they say to the sitter. You just need to keep them fed and safe and don't let them fight. We'll be home in a few hours. Keep them out of traffic. 
I'm not putting you all of parenting on my kids. I, I just need you to keep them fed and safe while we're away. Now the parent knows, I'm sorry, the sitter knows that they're under the parent, but still the sitter has a ju- limited jurisdiction. They know the parent's going to come back and they're going to give an account to the parent. Still, the sitter has a modest job, right? Likewise, a good government will fear and acknowledge God. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 2 says to the rulers and kings of the earth. A good government will fear and acknowledge God. It knows the day is coming when Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will cry out, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb to come. Right? They will all experience God's judgment for how they did their jobs. Still, God has given governments a comparatively modest, limited job. Short separation of church and state does not prevent us from enforcing certain Christian moral convictions in the public square, but only those convictions that God authorizes government to enforce. So it should be used the sword to insist that murder is wrong. That's a Christian conviction. Yes, absolutely we should. That stealing is wrong. Yes, absolutely we should. That marriage is between a man and a woman. Yes, that, that argument is lost. I get it. Nonetheless. That's the right position for a Christian to hold. Should we insist with the sword that Jesus is Lord? Well, every member of government should acknowledge as much, and individuals in government that don't will eventually veer towards injustice, but no, we cannot force them, nor do we have the authority to force them to do so. And finally, everything outside, as I said, of the government's jurisdiction is what we would call the domain of religious liberty. Okay, friends, that is my attempt to sort of disciple you into what the Bible says about the sphere, the jurisdiction, and authority of government so that you can begin to think, okay, how does this mean we engage in the public square? How do we not engage in further conversation? Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters this land was made for you and me as I went a walk in that ribbon of highway